This is Single Threaded. I'm Jen Creighton. Today, we're talking developer productivity. And no, I do not mean tips and tricks for VS Code. And I certainly do not mean if we're using Vim or not. What I'm actually talking about is developer productivity as an entire organization within a company. I myself, I now work in the productivity engineering org at Netflix. So I wanted to talk to someone else who was well-versed in this space. I'm being joined today by Rebecca Murphy. She is an engineering manager in the developer productivity organization at Stripe. And she's here to tell us what does it mean? What is developer productivity? How does it differ from other types of engineering? This is a very specialized subfield of engineering with its own challenges, very different from what you would see in product engineering. So we're going to elaborate on that. And we're also going to talk about why companies invest in developer productivity. What are they getting out of it? Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. So I have to say that the first time I think I ever heard from you was via an email, and I just never would have foreseen that at some point I would be having you on this podcast. Here we are. Here we are. And yet I, here we are. Yeah, I love doing these. Um, they're always a bunch of fun. You were also so gracious to talk to me. So how we met is that I was interviewing at different companies. And I interviewed at Stripe where you work, and you reached out to me in the hiring process. It was a very nice Happy to see you in the the hiring pipeline uh, thing. And it didn't work out for me with Stripe, but I reached out to you because anytime I see someone working in the space that I'm interested in, especially when they're a woman, like I want, I want their insight. I want to connect with them. And you were very gracious to answer some questions (laughs) I had about developer productivity and then now come on this podcast and talk about developer productivity. It is one of my favorite topics. So this is not a, you're not twisting my arm here. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. So for people who don't know, can we just get sort of a rundown of what developer productivity is? Yeah. So this is, I didn't know, this was something I was always into, but I didn't know it had a name until pretty late in my career in some ways. I've always been really interested in and how what what the development what the experience is for engineers doing engineering what does it feel like is it hard is it easy are there mysteries is there a happy path that you can just walk down with your eyes closed and that space has always really fascinated me i learned in my last job maybe i knew before but like my last job was my first job where i had a job actually working on improving the productivity of engineers at a company so the company is big enough that we that it was worth investing more people in making the people that we had more productive so that they didn't have to solve problems locally that we could solve generally, for example. So they didn't have to, individual teams shouldn't have to think about how they compile and deploy their code. That should be a central function. So developer productivity is, is in my mind, just kind of this idea of let's, at, at a certain size, you have enough engineers where it's worth investing in making those engineers maximally productive. That that is actually, it's not just nice to have, it's not just that it keeps them happy, it actually is materially impactful on the business at a certain size. 
and exactly what shape that takes. There are some things that are really obvious, and there are some things that may be really unique to the company or the where the company is in its life cycle or in growth or, or whatever. So the, the details of what developer productivity is can certainly vary, but often it involves deploys, tests, builds, these sorts of things that we can standardize across projects. And it makes sense to have a single team or a, a single group of people who are working on those capabilities, we use the word capabilities a lot, those capabilities for the whole business, for all of engineering, rather than individual teams trying to solve it themselves. And you mentioned at a certain size. So this is important because if you work at a very large company, I feel like you already know about this space because there's already probably an org dedicated to this if you work at a large company. But if you're like me, and you also said in your previous experience, you didn't know this was a thing, you may not have encountered this. So I worked mostly at small startups where this was not a thing. I did not know this could be a thing. It was... I learned about this through working on essentially open source, which was also developer tooling, and then decided that I wanted to do that, but at a different scale, which is not the whole wide world, but at a company <laughs> scale, right? Right, right. And that's when I sort of figured out that companies had this this org. What was your own journey to discover that this was like a thing you could do? Honestly, when I joined Indeed, which is where I was before Stripe, Indeed was right at this moment <laughs> of, we need this. And, and, and I think what happens at a lot of companies is that there are pockets of people working on this. And eventually, there are enough pockets of people working on this, start to talk to each other. And they start to realize there's a there's something here, there's something we should, we should band together and make builds faster. And I think that's, I don't know exactly what happened at Indeed so much as there were a number of teams working kind of on things in this space. And the person who hired me shortly after I started, started to push an effort to kind of coalesce those into a single organization. And there it was called engineering capabilities. So again, there's that capabilities word. It was called engineering capabilities. And it included the people who owned our development environment include the people who owned builds and deploys. And it also, I think it, it included, there was a QA component to it as well. I can't remember all the groups, but there were, there were about a dozen groups in this organization called engineering capabilities. And so it was cool to be, get to be there and see that kind of come to be, <laughs> um, you know, when I joined, I think they, there were a few hundred engineers, less than 500 and when I left, there were probably in the ballpark of 1,500 to 2,000. So I think like that's the, there is a tipping point around a small hundred number, small hundreds of engineers where I think this becomes a valuable investment for a company. Yeah. So I was going to ask, like, what size does this start to take on a, a life form? What size is the company? Is this now something that starts to become? Like a like a pain point between teams because I've also like I've worked somewhere that had say a hundred engineers and we were ex still experiencing quite a lot of pain about different teams doing things different ways and having no centralization, but we also struggled with startup mentality, which was that we needed to keep building things. We didn't really have the time to step back and look at the landscape and make those decisions on what should be centralized and who should work on it. And I think it's a hard, it doesn't feel good to have your first engineer who 
it seems like they're not making money for the business, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> like you're so Bad really, yeah, for the yeah, company, it doesn't, right? it doesn't like, feel good. Like you are never yeah. going to produce a feature. You are never going to increase conversion rates. Like to, to hire a person who is going to do none of those things doesn't, I, I haven't been in this position of having to go from zero to one, but I can imagine that that is for people who have been really focused on growth and time to market and all these things, that is a hard choice. But eventually it's just math. Like there is a day when this is just math, that if you can spend one engineer salary on making a hundred engineers, 10% more productive, you just buy yourself 10 <laughs> engineers. Like this is just, it's just math. And so I think that a lot of, a lot of places maybe like resist the math a little bit longer than they should. And they're trying to solve these things through like tiger teams or through squads or whatever, who are banding together to, you know, we couldn't deploy anything last week. I guess we better fix that kind of thing. <laughs> so I think that at the end of the day, though, it is just math. If you can use one engineer to make a hundred engineers, 1% more productive, well, that engineer paid for themselves, but maybe you didn't need them. But if they make people 1.1% more productive, boom, done. Like, <laughs> so I, I think that that's a real realization for me too, is that because I think I was agitating sometimes for this sort of work to be happening, but there wasn't a business case for it. it. It would not have been a bad, it would not have been a good decision to invest in a productivity team because the math wasn't there. But I think somewhere around uh, what Dunbar's number is like 250, I think, like somewhere where it starts to become inefficient for individuals to to kind of self-organize. And Dunbar's number is the the number, I think it's the number of people who you can kind of like keep in your head all at once. And it's around 150 or 250 or something like that. So the number of people who you can retain kind of meaningful relationships with it in a single <laughs> moment. So I think that is the size kind of where it starts to be actually inefficient to solve these problems in a organic way. And it becomes important to solve them in a, in a more focused way. Okay. And then once you get to that number, once you've convinced the business that this is a thing that should be done, you're dealing with, I imagine, the repercussions of the organic growth that was happening up until that point. And how do you even start to wrangle that in? I want to answer that, but there's something that you just said that was, that's really, that's interesting. And I think I didn't understand for a long time was that it is, you talked about when you make the business case, that is not a skill that a lot of engineers have. Or, no. and, they, so, and they often think they don't need to have, like there's products job to make the business case. And that was a real realization for me on this journey too, that like, I need to learn how to make the business case, just waving my arms around and like saying, there's lots of opportunity here. That wasn't, that was not compelling to the people I was trying to convince, it turns out. And so I think a big growth for me was, was learning how to advocate, not agitate, how to actually advocate with you know, reason. <laughs> about the need for investment like this. And, and I think I see a lot of early efforts fail because you have smart engineers who know that this is a thing that they need to do, but they just don't have the language to talk to the business about it. And that, that was my experience. I've seen, I've talked to so many other people who are like, how did you pull this off? And it, the two things, size and being able to articulate that business case. 
to the business that that's what it takes. You waving your arms around turns out it doesn't work. Yeah. Advocate, not agitate. (laughs) And in my mind, when I think of agitate too, I think of like a washing machine and like you're just shaking things about and like, yes, I've done that in my career where I just thought if I shake things enough, Uh (laughs) we'll get somewhere. And like, as it turns out, shaking doesn't move the needle. It, I mean, it it shakes it back and forth. It does. It shakes it back and forth a bit, but then it lands where it was at originally. It doesn't actually push it in one direction or the other. And you're right. Engineers, generally, we are not taught how to do this. We kind of think of our jobs as very um, removed from the business in some way and sometimes almost in like an altruistic kind of fashion of like, we're not wearing the business suit and using (laughs) words like synergy. So we're somehow, yeah, we're somehow, you know, better than that but when but i have found even just moving into the productivity org at netflix that this is going to be a part of my job and i'm going to have to get better at this somehow <laughs> yeah and this is a, part of what i've loved about this is it has pushed me to grow so much that that so many of these problems that we're talking about aren't engineering problems they're people and process problems which are engineering problems i lied <laughs> And so it, it's really pushed me to grow a lot in how to kind of own the entirety of the value that I'm trying to deliver and not just the code. And that's been really exciting. I, I want to come back to like you had, uh, well, this is your podcast. You should tell me where you want to go. I don't know. I can come back to the question you originally asked. Um, I've, I've forgotten that question. Right. Just, I'm actually now, so I let my guests really dictate where we're going. And like you were the one who were like, no, let's talk about the business case, like that engineers don't know how to do this. I'm like, yes, you're right. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about a little bit how you develop any of those skills because it's easy to develop technical skills because there's resources for you. What about resources for this? For like understanding like, you know, how to talk business, how to get people to understand your use cases, get them on board, things like that. Yeah. It starts with understanding like the business, no matter what the business is telling you about being a family or whatever, the business exists to make money. That is all the business wants to do is make money. Preferably they would like to make money in a way that is aligned with their mission. But let's be honest, like (laughs) we can change the mission if we can make more money. So I think that was, that's the, that's the first like, thing and it's super cynical and like yes there are good businesses in the world who have additional aspirations besides just making money but at the end of the day we live in capitalism like money is what this is about and so i i think like first recognizing that that you aren't we don't exist to like engineers don't exist to write code engineers exist to make money if you can make money with writing no code you should do that and if there are things about how you're writing code or, or things about your experience writing code that make it harder for you to make money, you should fix that. So, and this is gross and I, I can't wait until I can just retire and not have to do any of this to be <laughs> very clear. It's all quite gross when we boil it down to your, your businesses want to make money. But like first, just recognizing that, that there is no value in well-architected code. There is no value in like really 
handcrafted CSS. There's no you know value. You're breaking so many hearts <laughs> right now. I, but this is the thing is you have like, there is no value in those things in isolation. The like most gorgeous, well-commented, well-tested, none of it matters if that code doesn't make money for the business. And so for me, it was just boiling that down to like, how can I connect this to what the business cares about? What does the business care about? And how can I connect this to what the business cares about? And indeed, we did a ton of experimentation, A-B tests. We A-B tested everything we did. Not literally, but close. And that was really central to how the business believed that it would, it could create success, was try a lot of things see what works and iterate, iterate, iterate from there. Try a lot of things, see what works. You find that we ran this experiment and people click on more jobs or get more jobs or apply to more jobs or whatever. So I, I knew that the company really valued experimentation. Sort of by definition, we value rapid experimentation because the more experiments we can do, like this is kind of baked into the culture that more experiments are better. We can debate whether that's true or not, but it was really baked into the culture that more experiments are better. And so then it became a matter of how can I draw a straight line between difficulties that front-end engineers are facing indeed, and how that is impacting their ability to ship lots of experiments and kind of develop a hypothesis that if we do this, people can ship more experiments faster. Everything I just said, this is a product manager's job. And this is the, like, that's, that's kind of the punchline here is that these are product skills and product. I was really lucky at Indeed that we did have product partners, even in this productivity space, but that's not necessarily true everywhere. Or at least when you're starting, you may not have a product partner, or maybe your developer productivity grows out of your infra arm and your infra arm can't even like conceive of what a product person would do. Oh, but a lot of this, this like identify a business problem, develop a hypothesis about how you can, how you can improve that business problem and convince somebody that, that, that the work to prove or disprove that hypothesis is worthwhile. Rinse and repeat over and over and over again. But this, these are product manager skills. So I, I took a little brief detour into product management and I'm really realizing even at Stripe, like I never actually left product management because it's it's very much, I'm an engineering manager at Stripe, technically speaking, and I am technical and I have engineers who report to me, but so much of my job is identify a business problem, hypothesize a solution and what the impact would be and get buy-in for it. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat and ignore the things that, aren't connected to a business problem. So for example, we, we just, we've been in the midst of a project to improve build speeds, sorry, JavaScript bundling speeds at Stripe. And we made some big changes first in the development builds. And now we're going to uh, make similar changes in production builds that were for right now we're living in a world where there are kind of two build systems and it's not cool. So, but we knew it like that was, that was part of the plan. It's fine. <laughs> Um, so we knew we were going to improve development first because that's where the business value was, was in making builds faster for engineers. But we also knew that we couldn't have two build systems, that it was, there was risk inherent in having two build systems, one in development, one in production, one for development code, one for production code. And so we're working on a project right now to make the changes in production. But one of the things we really had to hone in on in planning that work 
was what are we not doing? What, what are the reasons we're not doing this? <laughs> like we are not doing this to make production builds faster. I don't, they might get a little bit slower. I'm cool with that. We'll fix it later. Like the goal here is to have parity in these two systems because having parity reduces risk. And that is the reason we're doing this project is not to make, not to make production builds faster, not to make like, we're not trying to actually improve anything. Our sole goal here, we, we did all the improvements last year. Like now our goal is just parity to reduce risk. And having that clarity of purpose, <laughs> it really helps you choose the right and most impactful work for the business. Like we can do a six month project to have parity and faster builds, or maybe we can do a one month project to just have parity and then prioritize the faster builds separately some other time. Because we also like not saying we don't want fast builds in production, we do, but just that having real clarity of what is the business problem that I'm solving and what is the shortest path to solving that specific business problem and don't like try and avoid decorating the Christmas tree with like all the things that you might get to do along the way. So I don't know. That was really rambly. My my point is that these these are like pro this style of thinking is very product like and is not necessarily something that engineers have acquired over their their uh, career. I do see, though, some similarities like with what you just said about what we're not going to do helps us clarify what we are going to do. And that was actually an important skill when we were working on new projects that we had a design for and we had to winnow it down to what we, the deliverable was actually going to be. Because you would get the idealized, like, we would like all these things, right? And you're like, oh, right. I guess, well, we could, but what's like, what if we- What's the opportunity cost of doing that instead of the other thing? Because we are, going back to our conversation a minute ago, we're talking about 0.1% matters. Like, you've you've entered a scale where 0.1% matters, and you've got to be really- intentional about not doing 0.2% when point when that takes more time than doing three 0.1% things. But what we're dealing with like ultimately very small margins in this business of developer productivity. And yeah, we're dealing with, we're, this isn't, this isn't a place, well, sometimes it is, but often it's not a place where one engineer can save a hundred engineers worth of time. It's a case where 10 engineers can save a hundred engineers worth of time, but only if they're working on the right thing most of the time. So yeah, developer productivity, I, and I think of as a low margin business where we have to be pretty ruthless in how we choose what we are and aren't doing. And that, yeah, that is a product skill. So I remember what my original question was, which was about like wrangling the different decisions got made. And part of that question, because we just talked about convincing the business. But when you're starting up the org, I also assume that there's the flip side of that, which is convincing the engineers to all get on board with what you're offering. Yeah, I think we, we, you and I have talked about this before, I think. Uh Yeah, this is more product thinking, right? So much of this is is product thinking, I think. Convincing, I think if you're starting out with, we have to figure out how to make people do do the things we want. That's, that's like the extreme of convincing. We have to figure out how to make people do the things we want. You've probably already lost. Like, this is not 
every now and then you can sneak in a mandate, uh, but that's, <laughs> that's usually going to be around security or reliability or something that's hard. I have found it really hard to push mandates around productivity because it does, it is disempowering to say, I, in my ivory tower, know better than you about how your team should be running to, and therefore I'm going to make you use this JIRA process, or I'm going to make you adhere to these code review rules. So it's a really fine balance. And I, I think a really important thing is to think of these users as customers and think of these users as customers who have a choice. Now, they may not have a choice like, well, your company uses AWS and they want to use Azure. Yeah, they probably don't have that choice, but they do have that choice because they can just quit <laughs> and they can just leave. If that, if using Azure or using Google, what's Google Cloud Platform, what it's called, if that is important to them, they do have a choice. They can just leave. And so that's another kind of formative concept here is that you do not have a captive audience. You have customers and those customers have a choice to use your th stuff or not use your stuff. And so it's imperative that you're solving real problems that they really have and that you can connect any you know friction that you're introducing with value to the business that they care about. It's not enough that it's value to the business <laughs> because they can always say, well, find another way to get that value to the business. I'm not going to use Jira. And so it, it can't just be there's value, value to the business and therefore you will do this. It has to be there's value to the business and value to your team and value to you, engineering manager, and valuable to you, product manager, who is like you are going to get faster experimentation, faster delivery, higher quality, if you embrace these tools that we're creating for you. So yeah, it, it really has to be kind of a customer relationship. The, the great thing is they're customers who you can talk to on Slack. Like they're, they're, they work with you and they share probably a lot of the same kind of company values and principles. Like we all work at the same company. We all claim to share these same values and principles and ways of working. So, so you have an advantage versus trying to sell to like a random enterprise in the world, but you do still have to really connect the work you're doing with problems that they feel they have in order to get them to, to want to buy into this, whatever the changes that you're trying to trying to drive it, it's Stripe. That's been, it's been <laughs> indeed too. I think that, at Stripe especially, I've been really surprised how little pushback there has been about this, actually. <laughs> We're showing up and saying, we'd like to take over your uh, your JavaScript builds. And they're like, cool, that sounds great. Because I think at, at Stripe, we have had a really strong culture of developer productivity outside the front-end space for quite a while. And so I think Stripe invested in this space organically early and was able to kind of turn those organic efforts into organized efforts on a reasonably fast time scale. But front end for reasons wasn't really, wasn't part of that original developer productivity space. And so we're in this, uh, me, my team is in this really unique position of kind of, we have this strong developer productivity culture that we can just lean into and we don't have to have some of the arguments that we might be having if we were doing this truly from scratch. 
So we understand that there is value in standardization. There's value in shared tools. There's value in common development environments. Like we, we have, we've kind of fought those fights in the past. And so my team's in a really fortunate position of being able to kind of latch onto a lot of that pre-existing culture and that pre-existing system, those pre-existing systems, and just reimagine them for front-end use cases. But it's not, we're not having to invent the principles of developer productivity because those were already pretty well ingrained. Oh, there's so much here. Because I feel like- so much here. I was like, where is she going to go from here? (laughs) Well, when we're talking about standardization and aligning on things, engineers, I mean, the the ones that I know, (laughs) very picky about things. And I've worked with a lot of engineers that wanted the freedom to choose whatever tools they wanted. And that's not always a good thing. And But I think sometimes like it's like you will rip these tools from my cold dead hand. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's a real thing in this. I'm going to do some more product talk here uh, <laughs> because this is really just all product. One of the first things that I did when I got to Stripe, because I was, I was new there, I had been working at another company for five years. I didn't know a lot about how Stripe worked or who my customers even were, what, what, what did they do for a living and what problems, what business problems were they trying to solve? So, but I pretty rapidly was able to identify that there were a few personas that I could kind of organize problems into. There were the diehard, like super skilled industry thought leader, front end engineers. That was one persona. We've got those people at Stripe and they're awesome, but they're like, they're also incredibly opinionated, incredibly interested in the latest tools. So that was one kind of persona that we had to think about. There was also the full stack developer, the person who they're just trying to build features. They're working on the back, they're working on the front, they're trying to add a button or add a form or, you know, so like add a payment method, whatever. They're, they're trying to just make a very predictable change to the user interface of the product in pursuit of delivering some new, new business feature. And then you have the, so that's, that's the second persona is like, I'm just trying to do my job here. And like, I'm comfortable with front end, but I'm not a master or anything. And I just want this to be easy and I just want it to work. Uh, And then the third persona is the drive-by developer, the person who's like almost never doing front end, but every now and then they have to for maybe they need to build some sort of admin tool or who knows. There are definitely engineers at Stripe who find themselves in this, like, I don't ever do front end, but now I've got to. And they're potentially kind of disoriented and don't, they aren't familiar with error messages or the tools in this space. And everything feels like, it's kind of a guessing game to try to get to where you're trying to get to. So coming back to like these people who are very opinionated and my cold dead hands, we really focus a lot on making them our partners, getting like that. We want them on our side. We want them to feel like they are part of solving the problems that we are solving. We are not going to optimize for infinite choice and infinite flexibility. And tomorrow we're going to write everything in view Like we're not, nope, we're not going to optimize for that, but we're also not going to make it impossible for them to experiment in that world because they're smarter than we are at thinking about where we need to go. 
front end wise. Like we want to empower them to explore, but we're not going to assume, we're going to actively assume that most people aren't like them. There's actually only maybe a handful of these people in the company. So really focusing on, instead of meeting their needs, getting them to help us think about how to meet other people's needs. So getting them on the team, whether that's literally on the team or just getting them to be kind of philosophically aligned with the team. So that was a lot of where I put my efforts in my first few months at Stripe was just building relationships with those folks and making clear, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. I'm not here to blow up your world. And again, because Stripe has had a pretty strong developer productivity culture going back several years, they have seen the benefits, like they've seen their their friends benefit from that culture and benefit from that investment. And if anything, they're just like, I want that. Why aren't you doing that for front end? <laughs> um, and so in this particular case, because of culture, because of history, because of individual humans and relationships, some of which I have had, like these are people who I met like in 2009 or something, like I'm leaning on relationships from... <laughs> from a decade ago to convince them we're on, we're on your side and we are going to make changes in there for the greater good. And we're not at the same time, we're not going to shut you down so far that has worked that I can't overemphasize how much that is such a cultural thing though, because it's very easy to imagine the opposite where you go to, you show up at a company they have a desperate need for standardization because of the leverage it's going to give them. But people are so are territorial and protective. That's a culture problem. And so that's a change management problem. <laughs> and there, I think that the strategy is just find somebody who thinks what you're doing is a good idea or thinks that the standardization is a good idea and make a case study out of them. Like somebody said to me, and indeed, some of the best advice I ever got is go where you're wanted, go where you're wanted, make an impression there. This all, now we're going to talk about marketing too, because I think that's a huge part of, of this developer productivity job. Go where you're wanted, make an impact and market the hell out of it so that other teams realize they're being silly by objecting. And again, develop relationships with the EMs or the directors or whoever it is that you need to like, figure out where where your kind of pressure points are in the organization. Maybe you've got one, you know, really difficult engineer who wants to have infinite choice. Maybe you're not the right person to talk to them. You might have to figure out who the right person is to talk. So there's there's like a whole influence operation to do too. So yeah, anyway, it's it is fascinating how like nothing that I've just said is technical. <laughs> no, and that's important to know about this particular like subfield of engineering. I don't know what <laughs> we want to call it, but like we just talked about, right? It's more product work, more developing relationships and figuring out how to influence the correct people, how to identify the correct people. We even uh, briefly talked about marketing. Here's a question for you. Why would any engineer want to go into this space? <laughs> <laughs> and I know yeah. my answer, but like people, there are engineers listening to this being like, why would, why would you want why, to do why, that? Why would you, you have to talk to people. Sounds why? awful. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to say like the job that has prepared me best for this job was when I was a bartender in my early twenties, because I was profoundly uncomfortable with talking to strangers prior to that. 
and being able to have pointless conversations <laughs> with strangers where the point was the relationship. The point wasn't what you were talking about. And, and again, bartending, the point was the money <laughs> to be like, I had again. to learn to talk to people so I could make money. It's okay to not to think this sounds not cool because it is a completely different kind of engineering from product engineering. A lot of engineers are really rewarded by seeing seeing their work in the world world, not just in the business, not just in their company's world, but seeing their work in the world, knowing that they solved a problem for a real person who is paying us money. So that's fine. And I, that when I'm interviewing people for a role on our team, I really, it's one of the things I really want to suss out is, does this light you up? <laughs> Do these problems that sit at the intersection of people and process and technology. Do you find that interesting? Have you had experience with seeing the impact that you can have by working on these kinds of problems? And people are usually really honest. They're like, nope. Or yes. Oh my God, I live for this. I don't know what's wrong with me. So I think it is important that, that you are excited, especially when you're just getting started with something like this. You know, when we have a team of 500, maybe all 500 of them don't need to be like deeply into this. But when we have a team of five, this is actually, these are pretty important skills. So I think why do this? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's fun. But I also, I, <laughs> and indeed, and at Stripe, it's like such a target rich environment that you're tripping over impact everywhere you go. And the, the, and this is, I think that this is why these skills are important is because you have to be able to make choices about what to work on, what's going to have the most impact or what is the most likely to have the most impact. But yeah, I think it is a target rich environment and you can have impact on people who you're going to see at lunch. Well, we used to see at lunch. I don't know. You don't see him at lunch anymore, but you're having sometimes an impact on sometimes, sometimes on the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so I find it really rewarding because the people, I have people send me emails that are just like, thank you so much. I am so glad you are here. My first day at Stripe, I had strangers writing me and saying, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad that your team exists because the impact opportunity, like they knew it was so huge. And so... I find it rewarding just because like I can show up to I can show up as a nobody <laughs> to a company. And like a year later, a lot of people know my name because I've been working on like abundantly obvious stuff if you're in this mindset. So what it wasn't like I'd really searched my brain for what we should do. I've just been working on abundantly obvious stuff, executing well and making meaningful impact on engineers experience. And that gets, at, at least at the companies I've been at, that gets noticed and rewarded. It doesn't take long to become kind of a visible person who's making a meaningful difference at the company. I find that rewarding. And I've never found that same sort of feeling working on working on product teams. No, it took me a good while to realize that I did not feel that way about product work. That yes, I like I knew I was building things for like real people. It's not like I didn't work at companies where like people were using the product or something. Right. 
But if I had to create one more button, like it just wasn't, it just, oh, it just felt meaningless when I was doing it, even though I knew, right? Like I knew people were using it. I am so thrilled about the high impact of this particular field because it is what drives me to want to be in it, is knowing who I'm solving the problems for, actually solving problems for people that I can talk to and say, yes, you know, it is high, high, high impact, which is one of the reasons why you might get into this field. We're going to start to like wind it down. So so some of my last questions are going to be about how do you get into this field? Yeah. My 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 (laughs) yeah, I'm like my story is not instructive at all. Like, but but my story is instructive. Like, you you're born into this field. I don't know. That's that's kind of how I feel. Like, I went to when I went to college, which didn't really work out. But when I went, I went for industrial engineering, which is the optimization of process. Like that, like the people who like figure out how to get your packages to you faster. The people who like do all of the logistics data that's industrial engineers. And so I was always fascinated by this, like, how do you optimize stuff? (laughs) (laughs) How do you take a repetitive task or how do you take a, how do you take a complicated task and make it, make it simpler to maybe the task isn't, maybe the the actual process isn't simpler, but it is perceived as simple. So like there, there is a version of this story where like, I've just, this has been, always been what my brain is good at. And eventually I found my way <laughs> to my actual job. But I think more practically speaking, and especially, especially for front end people. Uh, and this, this is like, I really want to talk to front end people because number one, it is often a neglected space in developer productivity because people's minds go to like, CI and and builds and tests and all these things that are very applicable. To, they're applicable to both front end and back end, but people are approaching it with a back end mindset because the people who tend to gravitate toward developer productivity tend to maybe be more of the DevOpsy, uh, maybe have more of a DevOpsy kind of background. But I think there's a huge opportunity for people who are, have front end backgrounds to really there's low hanging fruit at your company in the front end developer productivity space. I promise you, I don't know what it is, but there is lower hanging fruit than there is for the Java or Python or Ruby or Go or whatever language you're using. Like there, I promise you there's almost certainly lower hanging fruit in the front end space than in your company's standard backend language. There's, there's low hanging fruit there too, but like front end is just, it's just on the ground. And I think the challenge, though, for front-end people to get into this space, and I say this to candidates, I probably said this to you, I say this to candidates, is I need you to deeply understand how front-end development works and the challenges that people encounter. That doesn't mean like you can you know, take a mock-up and make a web page. I need you to understand like how we deploy, how code gets into a user's browser, how HTTP works, and how HTTP2. Like, I need you to deeply understand all of this stuff and then you're going to do none of that. Like you're not going to push a single pixel in this job, but I need you to know how like everything that goes into pushing a pixel. So I think like part of what I really like about this and part of what the opportunity here is, is that you can take that deep knowledge that you have and have more impact with it in the productivity space than you can have in the product space. Because eventually like, 
a little better architecture and a little better performance. Like it's just, you're, you're eking out like marginal wins on the product side. But if you're working at a company big enough, you can start to, with that same knowledge and some systems thinking and some productivity thinking and some product thinking, you can start to improve everyone who's out there pushing those buttons, making those buttons. You can make it so that it's faster to make the button or maybe the button makes itself. I don't know. Like maybe the product, maybe you're making something where the product manager can now make buttons or change. Like we did that at Indeed. We made it so that the product manager could change the text on a button in in specific languages without ever asking an engineer. And like that provided leverage for product managers to be able to experiment with things without even having with, with zero engineering time. So again, like you have to understand all these things, but then the system that you make to change the text on the button might be a Ruby CRUD app. Like, I don't know. So you have to understand the challenges that people face and be willing to kind of work across the whole stack to solve those problems. But with this deep understanding of the challenges that front-end engineers in particular, or people building user interfaces in particular, are facing. So yeah, anyway, I, I think that's a very generic, like, that's the opportunity for people. I think how do you get into this is you start doing it. You start on your team advocating for, and not like, I want to make the tests better because better tests are good. I want to make the tests better because they're going to improve our product reliability and decrease the amount that we're getting paged by 10%. Like come up, start practicing coming up with that business case for why you want to do the work that doesn't have a clear connection to the product. Develop, find, like make friends with your product manager if you have one on your team and start to like over, like build a relationship there, build trust there. They can become a great advocate for this kind of work if they understand the business case. And they may even help you, but make the business case but they probably aren't going to make it on their own because they're not an engineer. So I think it's just starting to practice in your own team, having these conversations about the opportunity, like what is the business case for investing in these sorts of improvements? Talk to people on other teams, get like, maybe you do form a squad to go make builds faster. But I think like if you're starting from nothing, start within your team, find your friends in the company which is harder in these times for sure. Find your friends, find your community of people who also care about this. And, but just to say it over and over and over again, this has to come from a business. There, there has to be a business justification. You can't like better engineering for the sake of it doesn't sell. So you have to sell something the business cares about. And often you can do that on your own team. Like that's a, that is the place to start. You don't have that to do a, it. At the at you a don't company. Have to start trying to do it right at this broad organization level. Exactly. Exactly. And if you think this is something that you want to do, that sounds like also a great proving ground for if this is really something that you want to work on. Also, yeah, we're gonna have to start using words like leverage and capabilities. Mm-hmm. I like that we've yep. sprinkled these in <laughs> uh-huh, throughout this uh-huh. conversation. Uh-huh. Yep. I'm I'm so very like self-aware that I'm using these words. So I, there's always some air quotes going on. But I think that the other thing is that this takes time. You can't just one day, like I'm going to start a developer productivity org. It takes time. And it also 
this is a hard thing for me to learn. Your company's culture might not be aligned with this way of thinking. That is true for so many things. Yeah. And like, that's not your failure. That's not their failure. Like, it's just some companies may not like this math. They like different math or they have other math that they're they're using to figure out how to spend their resources. And I think it's important to recognize when like you are laying out a business case and it's not getting anywhere, like that's not necessarily your failing. That could just be that company takes very, is in a very short-term thinking mode right now. And maybe they should be like, maybe they're about to run out of money. I don't know. So yeah, I think this is size dictates when this makes sense, but culture also plays a big part at the end of the day. We're going to end on, on that note. Thank you so, so much for talking about this. People are going to love this. I am super excited. I hope so. I love, love, love talking about this stuff. And um, I'm really excited that you asked me to. So I could talk about this for the next three hours, but we are, we've reached the end of our, of our slot. If you're curious to learn more about productivity engineering, Rebecca has sent some links that I'll put in the show notes for you. So definitely check those out. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it on your favorite social media? The podcast is still growing. So getting the word out there is pretty important. I'd be really excited if you shared. Next week, we have a break because I am going on a well-deserved vacation. And then we will be back the following week with a brand new guest. See you then. Thank you.